All right, well, we are wrapping up our time in the Gospel of Matthew. I wish I could have been here all the way through it with you. We're going to go into the book of Titus over the next couple of days. Got three chapters, and then we jump into the Older Testament book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah. Jeremiah's going to be a, 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 a ginormous task as we walk through it. It's, uh, what, 50-something, 52 chapters. So it's going to take us a little bit, and it's weighty. Uh, but it's going to be worth it. I really believe there's a lot, you know, some things that uh, Keith was praying over and talked about that appointment and calling. We see that in Jeremiah's life, which is going to make a tremendous difference in uh, what he's going to have to face, what he's going to have to endure, what he'll have to go through. Paul says the same thing in the book of Titus in chapter 1. He says, I do what I do because of the promise of God that I have an expectation that God is going to rescue the perishing, that God's going to do a work. Paul said, I'm not here to fix this world. I'm not here to fix this government. I'm not here to fix this society. I'm here to reach individuals one by one, day by day, that Jesus will transform lives one by one, and I believe he's able to do it, and I believe he promised it, and that's why he sent me out, and that's my expectation, that's my hope, that's what's going to give me what I need to endure, the trouble that's going to come my way to get that done, which goes right along with what our close of Matthew uh, reveals in the commission that God has given us to go accomplish. And uh, so is there anything that you want to uh, give away? Share that just helps you, encourages you, uh, knowing that calling upon your life, knowing you have been commissioned by him who has all authority in heaven and upon earth, who also makes a promise that I'll be with you. You see, he gives us the commission between those two great thoughts. Number one, I have all authority has been granted to me in heaven and upon earth. And then he says, and lo, I am with you even to the end of the age. So he who possesses all authority has committed to be with us until the end. And then we know when we go, we have his authority and we go with him with his presence. And that's what continues to compel us to go, continues to compel us in the opposition and the obstacles and the uh, objections to what we go in because he sends us out to the enemy. That's what he sends us to when he says go into all the nations. He said, I'm, I'm sending you to a world that is hostile. I'm sending you to the hostiles because you were a hostile at one time and I sent somebody to you and you're going now uh, to these hostiles that he already talked about. Remember when he was in chapter 24, he said they're going to they're reject you. And they're going to turn you over uh, and they're going to harm you and they're going to hurt you. He said, that's the ones I'm sending you to. And uh, so you, you go knowing that I have all authority and I'm with you. I'm with you until then. When they like you, I'm with you. When they dislike you, I'm with you. When they receive you, I'm with you. When they reject you, I'm with you. When they... Uh, 
affirm you, I'm with you. When they argue with you, I'm, I'm with you all the way unto the end. And what was what is mine, he said in John 16, the Spirit is going to give to you that which is mine, he's going to give unto you. Because we're his, we go in that same authority that he possesses. And, and man, we can cling to that and and walk in it. So anything, anything that just helped you, blessed you, spoke to you. That you were talking the other day about going to Colorado and back and nobody ever really encountered. Right, right. To the beach. And when I was down on the beach, I got down there early one morning. Yeah. 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 Uh huh. Uh huh. Yeah. Come on. We got to talk about the Lord. But you know, during us walking around and all, you know, when people go on vacation, man, they just don't hurry to get there. Yeah. Get on that beach, do what they want to do there. Take their hands off everything. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And that's really this message that he tells us. Uh, look at that Matthew 28 in the close there. Yeah, we can start in verse number 16. This is also going to be found in Mark 16. And it's also going to be found in Luke 24. Just they give different uh, advantage points in this. You'll find these same very similar uh, time and message of what he gave them. We may even look at Luke 24 because it, it, it goes in a little bit more in detail of how everything God's been doing in our life has, is, is working out so that we can be effective in doing what this commission has called us to do. Our growing is so that we can go. Our giving is so that we can go. Our gathering is so that we can be equipped to go and do uh, this work. And sometimes we, uh, we neglect that. That's what Keith is saying, that too many times people get caught up with uh, just the everyday mundane agenda of life and they fail to realize the commission is about you're already going. You're going on vacation. You're going to work. You're going to do this. While you go, make this the priority of what you do while you go. And that's what he says. Verse 16, Matthew 28. Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had appointed for them. This is coming from the perspective of Jesus sent these women and said, tell the disciples to go meet me. In Galilee, they knew where to go. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some even doubted in that encounter, which, was, which you could understand from the natural perspective how you would doubt that here's the one you just watched be crucified. You, you watched these things happen. And you heard of what had taken place. 
He's been on the earth for so many days as far as those, those 40 days before his ascension, which Acts is going to pick up on from Luke's gospel. But then he says this. When they saw him, verse 17, they worshiped him, summed out at verse 18. And Jesus came and he spoke to them, saying, All authority. That idea of authority is, is that he had the right and he had the power. He had the granite right to do what he had sent us forth to do and he had the power to do it. Authority, you have both the right to do something and then the power to get it done. He said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. As a result, in your going, make all make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey. That word observe means to keep, obey. So he's not saying teaching them knowledge, though you will. That, that's part of it. But it's more than just knowledge that you're, you're teaching. You're demonstrating obedience that they too will obey. So he's giving them some really hard things. You think about that. Pam, you, you can go and teach uh, somebody something. And we can teach these things. It's another thing to not just transfer knowledge, but to teach them how to walk in what you're unveiling to them. That, that's a whole other ball game. You can't, you can't make a man obey. You got to teach him how to obey. And, and this is, these are very difficult things. One, you go and you got to go. When you go, for an example, in you going, and you're making this a priority, that has to be in the upfront of what you're doing in every day. You got to think about it. You got to think about it when you're at home, when you're on the job, when you're taking care of kids, when you are meeting with people. That is always in your mindset. And sometimes that would include you got to leave somebody to go do this work. You're going to have to leave somebody at home to go on um, to do something God's given you to do that's going to take you away from them. That, that's a challenge. There's no, no question about that. Some of these men were going to have to go to some places and be involved in some things that will pull them away from uh, their family. And that's a challenge. So he said, go. But when you go, know that you go in my authority. And also you go to make disciples. You go to make disciples. Notice that. Not to go make what our modern day American idea, we use that word Christian a lot, don't we? What is a Christian? A Christian is someone who is recognized biblically, someone who is recognized as a disciple. But see, we don't do that in our modern culture. If somebody just says they know about Jesus and what Jesus did, we will classify them in American ways of doing stuff. We will call them a Christian. But they bear no fruit whatsoever than being a disciple. And a disciple is a what? A learner, a follower, somebody who gives themselves to a master to follow the teachings of that master. And scripturally speaking, 
the three times that word Christian is mentioned, it's always in relationship to how the world viewed the disciples. And the world would view the disciple in a, in a place where either they appreciated what they did or normally they were coming against them. They was going to persecute them for what they were doing. Why? Because the DNA, the identity that they unveiled was is that they were legitimate, sold out learners and followers of Jesus. And then they classified them as a Christian as being identified with Christ. You see, but in our culture, uh, it believes you could be a Christian without being a disciple. And that's totally contrary to anything biblical. So we look for disciples. We go make disciples. Those who have, who have been converted, who have turned to the Lord in trust and faith, and they are identified with Him, as this passage would say. Go make disciples, and when you make them, then baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So baptism is a thing that in a, in a world that is hostile to this gospel message, when you get baptized, that's a public demonstration. That's saying, I'm abandoning everything that I once held to. And he was sending them out into idolatry, meaning people who had lived their entire lives worshiping, say, Buddha, or Mohammed or anything like that in these cultures and these worlds that when you identified with Jesus, you already put a mark on yourself. You, you, you become the enemy. And these people were willing to what? Publicly identify with Jesus that he is my Lord and Master. I died with him, was buried with him, and resurrected to new life. That's, that's hard. That's a challenge. See, but we have his authority. And we have his promise. He's what? He's with us in the midst of it. The other thing is, is not just that, but then he said, teach them and baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now you're going to have to do something in this teaching of who the Father is, who the Son is, who the Holy Spirit is. Why do we need the Spirit? What did the Son do for us? What was the grace of God all about? Now you're getting into teaching this theological mindset of this triune three-person Godhead that is one. That's a challenge, isn't it? Somebody asked you, well, explain that to me. Well, you see, you got to have what? You got to have help to do that. You got to have help to be able to explain. So he's, he's sending us out to do a challenging, difficult, hard work. And then he says, teach them. Not just transfer knowledge, but teach them how to keep what I've taught you. Teach them how to uh, do and obey, not just transferring what you know about him, but what you know about him, how it has affected your daily living and your life. And you teach them to do the same things you've been doing. Remember, we say the mission of the church is, is quite simple. We complicate it often, but it's to reach people. Make disciples, teach people, equip them, and then what? Mobilize them to do what you're doing, to go where you're going, to go in the places God's made for them. And that's really what we see in this commission. commission. Reaching people for Jesus. Those we reach, we teach about Jesus. Those we teach about Jesus, we equip to serve Jesus. 
And those we equip to serve Jesus, we mobilize to go for Jesus in this world that we live in. And that's really the cycle of what we want to be consumed with in our everyday life. Reaching, that is, I'm thinking about, hey, this person is either has been interrupted by Jesus already and invaded with his grace, or this person still needs to be interrupted by Jesus. And if they're not interrupted by Jesus before they die, their life's going to be disrupted, and it's only going to lead to destruction. So we want interruptions of the invasion of Jesus and his grace so that people can be instructed by him and get take part in building the kingdom with us, or they're going to be disrupted by Jesus, and that only leads to destruction. And that's exactly what when we was in Matthew 24. Isn't that what he said? When he said the days of the coming of the Son of Man are going to be like the days of Noah. Noah preached and prepared an ark until the rains came. Only reason Noah could is because God interrupted him with his grace. But everybody else that didn't follow him, didn't take his message, and then the demonstration of him preparing that ark, when the rains came, their lifestyles were disrupted. But it came on the end of destruction. Noah was interrupted. The rest of the world was disrupted. And that's the same thing that's going to happen in this world we live in now. And that's just a good tool. I try to use that in my own working with people that, look, there's only two things that you can expect Jesus to do for you. Two things that's going to happen in your life before you die. Number one, either he's going to interrupt you and put you on a whole nother agenda of living, or he's going to disrupt your agenda, but it's going to be followed up with destruction. You don't want to fall in on that side. There's only two things you could expect. See, Noah was interrupted, then God invaded him with his grace, then God instructed him on what was coming. And then Noah took the instruction of God, obeyed him, and then prepared an ark for the saving of his household. We're not building an ark. Jesus is our ark, but we are building the kingdom. And you see, that's what he's instructing us on is just like he instructed Noah. And the Bible says what Noah was moved with fear and prepared that, that ark. Same thing with us. When we've been interrupted by Jesus, invaded with his grace, then he begins to daily instruct us on how to build the kingdom, to be part of that work. And we live in a world today that is enemies to those things. There's a few things God's given this world we live in because men are messed up. We got to admit that. Everybody's, this world is a messed up world because it's fallen. The people in it, it's fallen. And it, it's, it's, it's in, it's in uh, peril. And it will be that way until the end. We can't fix that. That's not going to be fit. That's not our objective. That's not what he sent us out to. Jesus didn't do that. The apostles didn't do that. They went to fix and preach and preach the gospel and let God fix men himself. They were just messengers. Now they had to love this broken, fallen world. That's, that's how we identify with the Lord. That's what he said. Look, you love your enemy. You love those that, that hate you and misuse you and despise you. You love them. That's how Jesus, he loved us when we was enemies of his. Well, 
this world we live in, God's given it a couple, a couple restraining factors. Now we see those restraints steady uh, being um, broken down. The first restraint we have, God says that he's written his law upon every heart. That's why every man is without excuse. You can't excuse it. He's written the law upon our heart. That's why even nations that didn't have a law, the law of God, were still accountable to him because God wrote that law of restraint upon their heart. Now, this law can't rescue them. It can only restrain them from um, doing terrible things. Now, within that, God has a means or uh, the, a weapon that uses that law written upon their heart. It's the conscience. The word con means with knowledge. It's a compound word. And God's written his law upon our heart. And our conscience bears witness with that law. But you see, what has society done? There's the, the, the conscience of men abroad because of this lack of desire for restraint has seared, has crushed that conscience. And they don't even feel bad or ashamed or blush about the things that they uh, used to be uh, wanted to only do it in the dark. Now they do it in the daylight and don't care who sees them. Why? Because the weapon of the of the law written upon their heart, they have done dulled it down. They done they done dulled that blade, and it don't work like the way it was intended to work. Then you have also another restraint. What is that? That would be uh, your family, parents, grandparents, elders, a community that works together within a house or within a society. And what, what is the tool or the weapon that God uses within a family to have restraint? It's the rod, the rod of discipline. God says it, that God's given us the rod, discipline, to help what? Keep our, our kids under restraint. Because if there's no discipline... And there's no parental guidance and no help. What do the kids do? They do whatever they want to do. And there's foolishness bound up in that. So they don't know what to do. Even though God's written on their conscience his law, if they don't have any guidance of a family, what happens to that? They just dull that conscience down and then they don't want nobody to tell them they can do or they can't do what they want to do. And then they fight back at that. Don't kids fight back at when you, when you, when you tell them they can't do this or can't do that? They're gonna. That's just the way it is. But you gotta use the what? The rod. The rod is what? The rod of discipline, the rod of correction, the rod of rebuke drives that foolishness far from him. Well, you look in our society today, uh, you see kids doing whatever they want to do. You see them in the streets, you see them rioting, you see all this kind of stuff. Why? Because they've cast off that, that weapon. That's a restraining factor. And our world's getting worse and worse from this perspective. And you're not going to fix it. But you can love them. And then you get to what's the next restraint? Well, God's ordained government. God's ordained government. It's a gift from God, he said. First Peter 2, Romans 13. 
There's a reason God puts government to restrain a society and that they exercise that authority and they are the reward that which is good and they're the punish that which is evil or wrong. And what is their weapon? That is the sword. That's how they, that's a weapon that they use to restrain a society. And you could look in our society right now, they're doing everything they can to get rid of what? Get rid of the police, get rid of the, the government, get rid of uh, the sword, get rid of, we want to do what we want to do. And we don't want anybody to tell us that we can't do it. And that's the society that we live in. And then you get to the final restraint, and that is the body of Christ, the church. And what is the church's weapon? It's the gospel. The gospel is the only thing that can change men from within. Conscience can't do it. Parents can't do it. The government cannot do it. But the, but the gospel can and that's why we don't go out to fix the world. We go out and we proclaim the gospel because God then uses it to fix the heart of man. And as a result, what takes place in this commission, in this gospel preaching, is that it makes disciples. And those disciples identify with Jesus. And then we teach them how to observe or do or keep those things that he's what? Commanded us to do. That he's commanded us. We live in a society that wants to mock the gospel. They want to mock these commands. Uh, even within the church. They say, oh man, you can go do whatever you want. God's got you covered in grace. Well, he said, go teach them those things that I've what? Commanded you. God has a reason for commanding us to lay our lives down for one another. He has a reason for why he says, submit to one another and come under orders of, of, of that protection of each other because in all of us, without the presence of God, we all want to live with no restraint. We want to do our own thing our own way. And we live in, in a society governed by a republic or a democracy which says the people, the people have the power as a whole. So when that being the case, when the people have the power as the whole of what they want to do and they live with no restraint and they casting down the conscience, they casting down the, the honor and the mother and the father and they casting down and don't want nothing to do with government, governing, guiding them and they don't want anything to do with the church. What, what, what only ends in that? Doom. It's just trouble. And that's where we, that's the path that this world's on. To war trouble. And the only thing that can change that is the interruption of the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes. It's the only thing that can change that. That's why it's of the utmost importance of us to realize, hey, we're going into a flow that is headed toward doom and destruction. And we sent out in the middle of it to, to interrupt individuals on that path. By bringing a message that changes them from within. Not to reform them, but to see them made a new creature in Christ. And then God begins to do that work. And then we teach and equip and mobilize. And they go out and become those fishers of men as well.
Now the key is, the only way to be able to do that, we've got to know that God promised to save people. And he can and he does and he will. We have his authority to do what we do. We carry his warrant to go do it. And he promised he'll go with us when we go. And so in all our going and everything we do, that's a priority that we have on our heart. And that idea that I was just sharing with you, that, that it, it, to me, I've, I've seen it. People don't really exactly know how to embrace it when you tell them there's only two things you expect Jesus to do, either interrupt you or disrupt you. Remember in the days of Noah, the scripture says everybody was doing what everybody was doing. They were still what? Throwing parties, still had plans for the future. They was giving their sons and daughters in marriage. They were eating and drinking and just doing everyday life on their own agenda with no clue what was coming. Why? Because they disregarded the message and the messenger and the demonstration of his faith in preparing that that vessel that he was going to get in when it was ready and they disregarded it and all of a sudden all their plans got disrupted but what followed that was rain and there was no escape when that when that rain began to fall the escape was available when the man that was interrupted and invaded with the grace of God was proclaiming his message of righteousness and that floodwaters was coming. So what happens in that is like us, that's what, what we've been called to do, the same thing. We're in the same kind, of, same kind of predicament and situation Noah was in. We preaching Jesus. He was preaching that the floodwaters was coming and that calling on men to repent and trust in the message of the Lord, even though they couldn't see it, just like we can't see these things apart from God's help in that. Uh, but we just go. And you got to think about this for us and for the society we live in. God has one standard for his judgment. And that standard is the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's it. That's the standard. When you stand before God... We stand before him, there's only one standard that God has, and that is the righteousness of his son. Well, if that's the standard of judgment, it has to be the standard of this life. It can't be that God's got a different standard at judgment than what he has in this life. The standards are the same. That's why we put our trust in Jesus in this life before we ever got to face God in the judgment. Because the standards for this life to be lived for the glory of God is his son. That's it. And that same standard is what men will be judged by when they stand before God. Can't keep the law. That's impossible. So the law is not the standard. Jesus is the standard. His righteousness. And the only way to be covered in his righteousness, you've got to be immersed in him. And that only happens through that great interruption and invasion of the Lord. Look in Acts 17. I believe he says it, something similar. If you just keep that in mind. Acts 17. Look in um, about verse number... Thirty. 
You see, the standard for life, Acts 17, about verse number 30, is the same standard for judgment. Verse 30 says, Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but right now, in this life, God commands all men everywhere to what? To repent. Verse 30. Why? Because God has appointed a day on which he will judge the entire world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all raising him from the dead. That is going to be the standard of judgment. Jesus. And if your life don't match Jesus' life, you don't have a leg to stand on. So that standard in that day is the standard that is required in this day. And that's why he says he commands every man everywhere to what? Repent and put their faith in the one whom he will judge every man by, the Lord Jesus Christ. When they heard it, what does the scripture keep on saying? They mocked him. See, those, that continual mocking and either they die or Jesus return, what can they only expect? their life to be disrupted from what they thought they were on a course on and he's gonna, he's gonna, that's going to be followed up by destruction. But an interruption by Jesus when he changes the course of your life in this life, he invades you with his grace and then instructs you uh, to walk with him. Amen? Amen? So that's just tools that you can uh, use. Two words, easy to remember, interruption and disruption. Man, has God interrupted your life? Has he invaded you with his grace? Titus is going to talk about it. Look in Titus 3. Titus 3. We go on to Titus. You're going to read about it in the next two days, three days. Tremendous word. Look in Titus 3. You've, you've heard me talk about these things before. But Titus 3, this is the world we live in. This is where they are. This is where we once were. And we're those tools that you're already going. You're already going. You're already going. As you go, make disciples. Make that a priority. Titus, he says in 3.1, He reminds us that we don't want to be in the business of being complainers and criers and murmurers and trouble. Remember, you're not going to fix this world. You've got to love this old world you live in. Not, not the world, but the people that live in the world. Even those that are your enemies. That's, that's why we don't want to get caught up in some of these things. He says, remind them to be subject to what? Rulers and authorities. Why? Because it's a restraining factor that God's given to all men. You don't want to cast that off. Don't listen to people that tell you that, man, you don't need all this stuff. You don't need, you don't need these rulers and these cops and you don't need all this stuff. Man, you need to be a free-minded, free-living, free people. Well, God's ordained all this. There's a reason why. This old world would be absolutely nuts if there wasn't a restraining factor. 
Men would do crazy things. They already do. They already do. They already do. Be ready. That's in you going. Be ready for every good work. Got to be on top of it. Got to be on top of it. Can't let them manipulate and dictate how you think and how you live. You got to be on top of it. Because if you get caught up in the everyday, you're going to listen to that junk out there and you're just going to join in right with them. So you got to be ready for every good work. That is, you got to listen to what they're telling you so that you got, you got something to give back to them that can make a difference within them. Speak evil of no one. Be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility to all men. That's the good ones and the bad ones. Being humble. Why? Because God gives more grace to who? The humble. You don't want pride to get involved in it. You start getting prideful, it's going to create strife. It's going to destroy relationships. It's going to just, it's going to be bad on you. Verse 3. For we, we, Paul included himself, us, ourselves, were also like them. We were once what? Foolish. What does that mean? You were unwise. You were not persuaded, disobedient. You were deceived, that is, led astray in your mind to think and do however you want. You served various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. That's basically saying you live for yourself. What that is saying. You looked out for who? Number one. And who was number one? Me, myself, and uh, always looking out for me. If I did something good for somebody, it was still about me. It was always about me. And if you crossed me, I was going to retaliate against you. Remember what Jesus teaches us is, look, don't be angry. Don't be vindictive. Don't render trouble for trouble. Don't render evil for evil. Love those that misuse you. For we were like that. Notice what verse 4 says. But when the kindness and the love of God of our Savior toward man appeared, that's in the gospel, that's where we, we found out about this, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us through the washing of regeneration of the Holy Spirit whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ that having been justified by his grace, which we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Notice, what is the difference between verse 3 and verse 4? His name is Jesus. That is it. The difference between the world we live in and those that live in verse 4, the difference is Jesus. Jesus made the difference. He made the difference by his life and we found out about his life and what he's done for us through the gospel. Somebody told us the gospel. And in the gospel, we heard of God's loving kindness and his goodness and his grace. We heard about the forgiveness 
that was offered in his blood. And we recognize we were sinners and transgressors and at enmity with God. And we turned in our trust and we repented and laid our life at his feet to be made a disciple of his. The only difference between three and four is Jesus. The interruption of Jesus. The interruption of Jesus. We all lived in verse three. And once you get in verse number four, you only look at verse three of what you used to be, but he done something in your life and changed you. Not that you still can't be act foolish and still practice unbelief and still do some of those things, but you've been permanently invaded with the grace of God. Your life is no longer uh, the same and you've heard me say this before if you ever saved you're forever saved by the grace of God because that's eternal that's what Jesus does so that interruption we see it right there who we used to be who we are now now if you never are interrupted you could only anticipate a disruption of that agenda so one comes with Instruction and invasion of how to live. The other one comes with destruction. And we want to help people out in the day that we live in. We got, we, we got people around us. We cross paths with a lot of people. And uh, a good majority of those people are headed for a disruption. And we want to, in our going, help them out. Amen. Help them out with the good news. Only Jesus can save. And they've got to hear about him and what he's doing. Uh, the scriptures is pretty clear. The mystery of godliness is Jesus. Jesus. Let me show you that. The mystery of godliness. And we're going. We're going. What time is it? 7.01. Y'all look in um, uh, Timothy. Look in Timothy. Let's see. Look, if you would, in verse First uh, Timothy chapter number three. This world we live in, there's the mystery of godliness and the mystery of lawlessness. The mystery of godliness and the mystery of lawlessness. The mystery of lawlessness is the work of the enemy that the world we live in don't even realize the enemy's behind it. That's the, that's the problem. That's why it's a mystery and that's why it's deceptive. It's also a mystery of godliness because they can't see why you live differently than they do. It's a mystery. But that mystery is either Satan or Jesus. That's the two mysteries. And we see in verse 14 of 1 Timothy 3, These things I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly. But if I'm delayed, I write so that you may know how to conduct yourself within the house of God, the dwelling of God, which is what? It's the church, right? That's the people of God. The church of the living God, and what is it called? The pillar of and ground of what? 
That's who we're to be. The church is the pillar and ground of truth. That's what holds up and supports. Pillars and foundations support a thing. So we are that support of God's dwelling, the people of God. And he says, verse 16, and without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. Now watch, I'm going to read it and you might as well just put Jesus all over it because this is what he's referring to. That is, God was what? Manifested in? Jesus was born of a virgin, taken upon flesh. He was justified in the spirit. He was seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and received up in glory. So the mystery of godliness is who? Jesus. And the mystery of lawlessness is Satan. Is Satan. And like Jesus has the Holy Spirit, Satan has his Antichrist. These things. But the pillar and ground of truth is the, is the body of Christ, the church. Who in our going, we go teach them what he taught us on how to live. Amen? So all these neat things, such good Great and glorious truths. Had a little note, if I can find it, I'll read. A little paraphrase of Matthew 28. Jesus said, you're already going to work and to the marketplace and to your neighbors and on vacations and to the airport, and to the hunting camps, and to the fishing hole, and to the schools, and to the ball fields, and to the doctors, and to the church, and the family gatherings. So as you go, make disciples of all the hostels. Teach and demonstrate to all them what I've taught and exemplified to you. You're already going, just go now with a different priority and perspective, a different purpose and plan, with a different power and praise. For I will be with you to grace and guide you when your going is for me. Yes, I'll be with you when they rejoice with you. I'll be with you when they receive you. I'll be with you when they reject you. I'll be with you when they praise you. I'll be with you when they persecute you. I'll be with you when they deny you. I'll be with you when they fire you. I'll be with you when they accept you. I'll be with you when they jail you. I'll be with you when they bankrupt you. I'll be with you when they kill you. I'll be with you when they behead you. Go for me and I will forever be with you until the end of time. Let's go with him. Amen. Amen. Father, we thank you tonight for the opportunity again to gather. And we know this gathering is just to help us go. What we learn, what we do, you said you will make us fishers of men as we follow you. So, Lord, we do want to uh, follow close to you. We want to be taught by you. We want to hear from you. We want to know you, and we want to make it known. So help us, 
and our going to keep in mind who we are, the hope that we have, the promises that you've given, and that you're always, always with us in our going. So we praise you and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Love y'all. Y'all got anybody have anything before we go?